It was uh, after Easter in Utah, and I can remember that day that it was snowing, and uh, we were making plans to pack the truck up. We had sold our home and to relocate to Charleston. So we relocated over the summer of 2006, and then we began to invite people through our home, a lot of hospitality, a lot of sitting around the lingering or at the dinner table to talk about a new church starting. At that time, the design was to start a new church on Daniel Island. We have, uh, if you've been with us for a while, we've met in a number of different locations. We thought for a while our motto might be, you can worship with us if you can find us. Um, We've been uh, here in the school for a particularly long time. Uh, It's been a great location for us to have worship and also Sunday school, but we're looking and pray for us. We're looking for yet another location while we pray for a permanent church home. This morning, I want to talk about the scripture that's behind two rivers. The two rivers of Jesus. The two rivers of Jesus, and they, they merge. They're, they're separate, but they're not independent of one another. That we as Christians are called, commanded, to love God and to experience His love through the gospel, for ourselves. And we're called the second river to love one another and then to experience the love of others through the gospel. That's at the heart of two rivers. In that intersection between the love of God and the love of others, between loving God and loving others, in that intersection, imagine a cross, is the gospel. God first put His love upon us, unworthy as we were, deserving of His wrath, but He put His love upon us in Jesus Christ. He gave us ears to hear the good news of forgiveness. He gave us eyes to see Jesus Christ, now no longer a stranger, but as a beautiful Redeemer and Savior. And then He also gave us a heart to love other people. He changed our heart from self to selfless. And he's still in that process of doing that. It comes, the Scripture, in support of the vision of these two rivers of Jesus, is found in Mark, verses 28 through 34, as Aaron had read earlier. And I don't have an outline this morning as I want to look at this this account, this account of a scribe asking a question in Jesus' answer to this lawyer of God's law in a, in a narrative, rather than just a point-by-point outline, we're going to look at each of these verses. But I want you to hear Not simply Jesus Christ talking to a scribe, a a lawyer, you know, of, of the Pharisees, of the Sanhedrin, 
He would have been a Pharisee. He would have been a lawyer for them. But I want you to hear Jesus speaking to your inner lawyer. Your inner lawyer that perhaps puts up defense or has a rational list of reasons why you don't love God currently with all your heart and soul and your mind and your strength and why you don't love those difficult people in your life or why you're not found in community with others being loved and, ex- and loving them. Verse 28. One of the scribes came up, heard them disputing with one another, seeing that he answered well, asked him a question. If you go back to uh, verse 13 of Mark 12, We read that they sent to him some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians to trap him in his talk. And then if you look at verse 18 of Mark 12, and Sadducees came to him who say that there is no resurrection. And then if you were to go back to Matthew 22, verse 34, But when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together, and one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? And Jesus answered him. Let me give you the setting. It's Passion Week, and it's Wednesday It is the Wednesday before the Friday when Christ will be crucified. It's the week of the Passion. And He is in the temple courtyard. The temple courtyard where there would be be the selling of animals and also the dismembering of animals and the burning of animals for sacrifice. And Jesus Christ was frequenting the temple during his last week of mortal life on earth. He had had a triumphal entry. He will, in the evening, he will leave Jerusalem and go to the hillside to camp with his disciples. But then the next morning, he'll be right there presenting himself open for questions. And as I just read, there's three waves of questioners First are the Pharisees. The Pharisees are the religious rulers of Israel. Israel was a theocracy. Its form of government was religious law. And so the Pharisees came. Now, the Pharisees had a problem. In Mark 12, 12, it says, they were seeking to arrest him, but feared the people. They can't arrest him because they fear a revolt, because Jesus Christ was popular. In fact, they envied and were jealous of that popularity. And Jesus couldn't be arrested because they feared that the people would turn against them. And they could not, they didn't have grounds 
to present him for crucifixion yet. So what they were going to do was they were going to discredit him. So they would approach Jesus and they would lay these, these verbal traps. In this case, it was, who should we pay taxes to? So the Pharisees come and they lay their verbal trap. And it says that uh, in verse 17 of chapter 12, Jesus said to them, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. And they marveled at him. He was untrapped. He escaped. Next are the Sadducees. They came. And they talked to him about the resurrection. And the Sadducees were the more liberal bunch in the Sanhedrin. And they didn't believe in the resurrection. You're dead, you're dead. You're worm food. And they're questioning Jesus. And it said here that this scribe saw the dispute. And he saw how Jesus was answering them. And then I'd read out of Matthew 22 where when the Pharisees heard that he silenced the Sadducees, you can just see this scene. So here's Jesus in the temple courtyard. People are all around that he's popular with. They recognize him by sight. And here come the Pharisees. Teacher, we've got a question. It's a trap. He overturns it. Then they leave. Ah! Sadducees, get in there. Ah, we got one for him, the resurrection. A man dies, leaves a wife, his brother marries her, he dies, leaves her, yet another brother. Seven times it happens, whose wife will she be in heaven? He confounds them, he answers wisely and correctly, such that even the scribe sees and says, man, that was, that was, a, that was a good answer. He answered well. So he sees the Sadducees coming in there. Ah, they're disputing. And they go off. And now the Pharisees and the Sadducees, they're talking and saying, man, I'm, we're just not getting to this guy. Man, we just, every time we think we got him trapped, he answers in a marvelous way. He answers well. We can't discredit him. It's just increasing his popularity. And a scribe, Seeing that dispute breaks away and he comes and he asks Jesus a question. And I would tell you that this scribe is not trying to trap him. But he does ask a challenging question. The Pharisees and the Sadducees wanted to challenge Jesus. Because over and over and over again, they were hearing Him speak to men and women as sinners and outcasts and saying there is a way to eternity home with God your Father. There is the forgiveness of sin. I am the door. Receive me. Repent. And believe, be washed, be baptized, set your life apart. Love God. But he didn't emphasize Mosaic Law. This is the last time, by the way, that they will try 
to question him. It says in verse 34, after that, no one dared to ask him any more questions. Now they will, next time the Sanhedrin, Pharisees, Sadducees, and scribes together meet with Christ, it's at his trial, where they've seized him in the night, and early in the wee hours of the morning, they're all there then asking him, tell us one time from your lips, are you the Christ? And he says, yes. And they say, blasphemy. Now that's worth dying about. But this scribe has an honesty about him. A sincerity. He's not trying to trap them. But he does ask him a challenging question. He says, which one of the commandments is the most important of all? Now, you need to know that this is a challenging question because, see, a scribe, there were 613 commandments. 613. Roughly half of them, a little over half, were do not. And then the remainder were do. So it was all about don't do this, do this, in order to experience life with God. In order to for God to be pleased with you and you to be pleased with God, you need to not do this and you need to do this. And it was very burdensome, as you can imagine. And not only was the law burdensome, but there was no life found in it. And I believe, and this is speculation perhaps, but I believe this scribe was experiencing that. He was saying, you know, I, there's so many laws. So many. And to listen to you talk about life with God, I mean, down in verse uh, 27 of chapter 12, Jesus, and the Pharisee would have heard this, said, He is not God of the dead, but of the living. You're quite wrong. So he's saying, you Sadducees and you Pharisees and you scribes, you're worshiping God religiously, but not relationally. You are obeying God and seeking to obey God as if He were just dead. And it's all fixed. Not alive. You're not experiencing a living God. And that's the case for some of you this morning. You're very religious. But your life, your spiritual life is very plateaued, if not stunted, because you're not experiencing God relationally. He's not a living God to you. But He can be. He wants to be. And that's what the scribe is asking about. He's saying, how can I walk with God? How can I obey God's commands, and experience Him as a living God. And Jesus answers him. Oh, by the way, there's one other thing that I wanted to look at. Is it's in Matthew 23, 23. In Matthew 23, 23, you get a, a taste of what a scribe would do. Um, Matthew 23, 23 says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin. In other words, 
you go to the spice cabinet and you look and you say, okay, a tenth of that cumin is got to be, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give that away. And the mint and the deal. But you've neglected the weightier, that word I'm going to come back to, matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. So even Jesus acknowledges that the work of the scribe looking at these 613 commandments, was saying it's just not humanly possible to obey fully with your life, every one of them. So which one weighs the most? Which one weighs the least? Which one pleases God the most or displeases Him the most? Which one, eh, it's okay. And he said, you're out of balance. But this scribe, all day, he would look at the commandments of God and then they would add a commentary and then it would become another commandment. A, a, an, an amended commandment. A command to tithe. Well, now they've amended it and said, well, now, it's not just tithe financially. It's tithe everything. Tithe your spice rack. And Jesus has said, you guys are out of balance. And so what the scribe is saying is saying, which is the heaviest? Which is, which is the one that weighs the most? And Jesus answered, the most important is here, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. This is taken out of Deuteronomy 6, verse 4 and 5. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your might. The Lord is one. It's the Shema. Which means hear. It's a daily prayer of every pious or religious Jew to this date. And it started back in Deuteronomy when Moses gave it as a repeated preamble, a, prea- a, a, a foundation for all of the commands. Listen up, Israel. Hear this. The Lord is God and He's the only one. Love Him. Follow Him with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength and all your mind. Deuteronomy is, get the context of Deuteronomy when Moses said this. It's the end of the wandering years. For 40 years they had left Egypt. And the wilderness period that they, they experienced for 40 years, it actually was a very short distance from Egypt to the boundaries of Canaan. Very short distance. But because of their refusal to trust God completely, then he said, all right, I'm going to let you wander around in circles for 40 years. But in 40 years, this generation will have changed. And then I'll lead you into the promised land. And so Moses in Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy means second law. He's saying, listen, we are just weeks away, months, from going into the promised land. The wilderness wandering years are over. So now, 
Here, O Israel, let me remind you as we go into the land of Canaan, they have many gods. They have many idols. You have one God. Here, O Israel, our Lord is the God. Love Him. Love Him with all your heart and your soul and your strength, with your mind. Love Him. So what Moses is saying here is, Moses is saying, look, because the Lord your God is only one God, and there are other gods, don't divide your love. Don't, Don't split it up. You don't have to worry about it. You can focus all of your mind you don't have to say, well, all right, I've got to treat this God this way and I've got to treat this river God over here if I want the water to flow and then the, the sun God, I've got to do this because I want the sun on my crops. No, the Lord your God, He's one God. Just focus all your love there. Jesus uses the word agape for love here. And agape love is intentional love. It's not sappy Silly, romantic love. It's agape love. And um, Allison has heard me say this before, uh, having a privilege to work with her and do weddings. Many times I will tell a couple on their wedding day, the vows that you're getting ready to take, for better, for worse, for richer, for poor, sickness and in health, is like a couple facing one another and saying, this could go badly, but I'm not leaving. I have set my love upon you, and it's more than feelings. Oh, it's that. But it's an intentional putting my love upon you so that when it goes bad, I'm not out of here. I'm in it for better or for worse. And that's what Jesus is saying. Jesus is saying, this is the kind of love with all of our heart and our soul and our mind and our strength. This kind of intentionality focused on one God saying that if trial comes into my life, I'm not booting this God. I'm not forsaking Him. I'm not questioning Him so much. It's all right to question, but don't leave him. Wait for him to speak to your heart, for he is your God. He's the only God. But your love for God, that Jesus is saying here to this scribe, is he's saying, is this agape kind of love? It's, it's an all-consuming type of love. Jesus goes on and he said it is a love that you love God with all of your heart all of your soul, all of your mind all your strength. Time doesn't permit me to break each of these out and give full attention to them. But let me just give you a sentence about each one. Your heart is your core. It's not talking about giving your physical heart. It's talking about giving him your identity. 
When you come to know Christ as your Savior, your Redeemer, He becomes your Lord as well. And you're not saying, I'm going to give you part of my affections, part of my identity. I'm going to give you all of my core. It really looks like a person in love. Secondly, soul. Soul, in some of your Bibles, the word there is spirit. And elsewhere, it will use the word for spirit. But it's to say breath. I give you my breath. There's a, there's a daily consciousness of my soul that, that you are with me and I am with you. There's a... It's, in, the fourth, in the fourth century, the monks practiced breathing prayer. They, they had an exercise where they would put, a part, put aside part of the day and they would say, okay, breathe in, and as you breathe in, give praise to God and thank Him that He is your God and all of the provisions, all of the gifts, even your salvation that He has given to you. Breathe all of that in. Breathe it into your soul. And then as you exhale, say, and I give all of my life, all of my affections, all of my gifts back to you. Breathe in, you've given it all to me. Breathe out, and I give it back to you. That's loving with your soul. Loving with your mind. You know, we have that phrase, I've made up my mind. Again, this is, this is an intentionality, a consciousness, an awareness. Worship and love for God is not just a Sunday morning exercise. We are over and over again. We are being discipled and we're growing. We're growing to, to learn more about Him. And that's giving us the mind of Christ. Right now, you've got open Bibles or you're looking at the words, the Scriptures that might come up on the screen. Or you're, you, we've talked about, you know, we've sung song lyrics we have conversations, gospel conversations with one another. We read our Bibles privately. We journal. We meditate on that. All of that is saying, I give you my mind. I want to know more of you. And I want to think even like Christ. And then finally, is strength. And I'll just say, it's energy. It's, it is my body. But it's not saying strength in myself. But it's saying that whatever strength or abilities or gifts that you give me, however physically I am found, I will steward it and I will yield it back to you lovingly. Not, oh, i got to serve Him, I'm a slave. But no, I'm a royal son or a royal daughter. I'm an ambassador of Christ. And whatever role or position He puts me in, however humble or seemingly noble, I can trust that He's put me there and I'm going to love Him accord and then Jesus says the second is this in others places he said the second is like to it I mean it's it's one coin it's really one command I'm not he's not playing trickery with the scribes saying well you asked me the the one that's the weightiest well let me give you two because I can't quite. no he's saying they're attached he said love your neighbor as yourself 
love one another and be loved by one another. That you're out of balance. That, that scale of our life is out of balance. If we just love God and say, people are too difficult, too messy. It's just, no. Or to say, it's just, you know what, I'm not a real spiritual person, but boy, I'm a great host and friend and I love social circles. Paul Tripp and Tim Lane, in writing about how community transforms, both of those guys are Christian counselors, so that's why I wanted to give you a quote from them. It's a, not too lengthy. Our personal relationship with God links us to other believers. Our transformation is worked out within the family of God. This is not necessarily the simpler way. Being involved with other people can be inefficient, complicated, time-consuming, messy. So many things can go wrong. But community is a big part of God's plan to transform us into the image of Christ. Let me repeat that. Community, your loving relationships with one another is a big part of God's plan to transform you. Uh Uh-oh, I'm not in community with other Christians. Maybe that's why transformation is not what it should be in your life. You're not becoming more and more the son and daughter that God designs you to be, in love with Him with heart, soul, and mind and strength. As isolated individuals, we cannot reach the level of maturity that God has designed for us. So, God... Jesus says we need both. And they're inextricably linked together. A love for God, a love for others, loved by God, being loved by others. And it will stretch us to our capacity to love God and to love one another because He's saying, there is not this so comprehensive. It's all. All of everything you've got. What he was doing is he's saying, oh, I'll give you the weighty law. What he's doing was he's saying, I'm giving you a command you can't obey. You can't. You cannot humanly love God with all that you've got and at the same time Love other people like you love yourself. And this is not a prescription for self-love, but it's just saying, listen, in the morning you look in the mirror and you comb your hair. You're taking care of yourself. You fix yourself or it's fixed for you something to eat. You feed your body. You groom yourself. You feed yourself. You teach yourself. You protect yourself. You take care of yourself. Hopefully you don't talk too much to yourself like I do, but you... He's saying, now... All of those things. You don't have to be schooled in how you take care of yourself, but don't 
be selfish and self-love, but now love other people. I had, a, I had someone tell me, the way they applied this was that there was an orphanage every year that they adopted a number of children out of this orphanage, <coughs> and they would give them Christmas gifts. And they said that what they would do is that they would never give an orphan in this ministry, in this love for others, they would never give an orphan a gift. Or every gift they would give an orphan would be the same, the same price, the same level, maybe even duplicate that they would give their children. They wouldn't give them less. But here Jesus is saying, man, even loving other people, you're giving everything. And scribe said to him, you're right, teacher. You have truly said that he is one and there is no other besides him to love him that way. It's much more than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. Now remember our setting as I get ready to end. He's in the temple courtyard. They could smell the smoke. They could, they could smell even the blood of animals being bled out, prepared to be burnt and sacrificed. And the scribe is saying, what you just said is so right. It's genius. Because that's what Moses said back in Durham. You are, you're, you're, you're just giving the right motivation for the Christian life. A Christian is defined as one that loves God and that love flows out into loving other people. He said, that's, that's, that's it. And that, what you just said, is better than that. That atoning sacrifice, what you just said, that command, man, that's, that's good stuff. And Jesus looks at him and he says, you're not far from the kingdom of God. But he was. Oh, he was, he was very, very close. But there's a chasm between him and Jesus. And I've wondered at times why Jesus didn't take this opportunity to share the gospel with him, that he is the bridge over knowing the commands, affirming the commands, but not doing the commands, not loving God with everything, not loving others with everything, or saying, I, I can't, how, I want. But Sometimes I wonder, why didn't Jesus give him the gospel? Jesus already had, and this is Passion Week. And I believe very soon this man can hearken back to this conversation. Because we find in 1 John chapter 4, that's a great location, that Jesus Christ would be the propitiation. That's a big word that means He would remove all the anger, all the wrath, all the punishment that is due us. He would just take all that away by dying in our place. And that way, God shows His love to us. And we receive that love and it transforms us. 
Because we then become a people who are so madly, passionately in love with Him that we will love Him who has first loved us. And we'll love other people. Particularly now, we won't shy away from messy relationships because we know that we're somebody else's mess too. We know that Jesus didn't shy away from our mess. But He entered into that. And He died for us there. Not receiving Jesus, we're yet far from the kingdom. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I wish this narrative of this encounter of the scribe with Jesus would have an ending. I'm left with a question mark about how does it end? Would he end his life still very close, seeing how the kingdom of God works? Citizens, sons and daughters who love God with everything and love one another. What a happy kingdom with God as our rightful king and head. Father, would he take the next step to say, I want to be in that kingdom through the door of Christ's death on my behalf. I hope he did. Father, we're asking this morning that at two rivers, you would move those who are so close to the kingdom but not in yet to take the next step, to repent of their inability or their past to not love you with everything, or to not love other people. But then turn with open hands and surrender to ask that you would set your love upon us as demonstrated in Christ's death on our behalf and that we would receive that act of great love and forgiveness and you would transform us. You would transform our hearts our soul, our mind, and all of our strength. And then, Father, with that good news at work in our life, we would love others, and they in turn would love us. Father, we ask that you would find us in that kingdom, ever growing more in love with you and others, for truly, this is at the heart of our vision as a body of believers called Two Rivers. You do this work of transformation, we pray, by your good news of Christ. We ask in His name. Amen.